0: As we've begun chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and entered a new section where Paul is describing and explaining and correcting the wrong thinking regarding the resurrection, not only of Jesus Christ, but also of the saints and the future, we have seen as an introduction to this series Paul unpacking the gospel. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 through 4 which say this and encapsulate the entirety of the gospel, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Everything that Jesus Christ did for us is right there. Everything that we need to believe about Him is right there. Everything someone needs to know and understand and accept and proclaim to be switched from eternity in darkness into eternity in light is right here in these two verses. The death, the burial, the resurrection. And in those two verses... We saw how the burial of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week, was proof of his death, because you don't bury a ghost, you don't bury someone who just disappears, you don't bury a spirit, a vision, you bury a dead human body. And if the burial was proof of his death, his appearances were proof of his resurrection. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we get closer into the meat of what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. And with that understanding, you understand why he kind of breezes through the death and the burial. And then in the resurrection, he emphasizes all the appearances. And then he will continue to talk more about the resurrection. But this morning, we're in verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there with me if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, and this really is a a continuation, at least the first verse, verse 5 is for sure, of what we saw last week. So the reality is, as a side note, if you were to read some verses, as I mentioned last week, to present the gospel, I would include verse 5 in there. And then as a transition and as a bridge to greater teaching on the resurrection, he speaks of more Appearances Well, let me read those for you, First Corinthians 15:5 through8, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so, to my point earlier, you see in verse 5, he starts with and, and that goes back to what he received and then delivered, death, burial, resurrection, as well as the appearances. So, this morning in these verses, though, as we speak and emphasize on the appearances post-resurrection, I wanted you to see four phases of this, four phases of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. Four different groups or individuals that saw Jesus after his resurrection, at least according to the timeline of the Apostle Paul. Before we get into our outline, before we get into those four phases, those four groups or individuals, I want to talk about by way of introduction still what it means to appear. With every phase that we're going to look at, it says he appeared. He appeared. Now we understand on the surface what that means. He showed up. He was resurrected in bodily form. He appeared to these people. But we need to understand, as we mentioned last week, that these were not mere visions. This was not him appearing as some sort of spirit. These were actual appearances. His physical, resurrected human body. The doubters touched him. They fellowshiped with him. He appeared, spoke to, and interacted with other people. This was not some brief sighting far off in the distance. It wasn't someone hiding in the shadows like the Loch Ness Monster or a Sasquatch. They actually fellowshiped with him. They were sitting with him. They touched him. They felt his human, physical breath on their necks. It's interesting to note, too, that despite revealing himself to those who he knew who knew him well appearing to those who were with him for many months spent much time with him we are told that time again time and again they did not recognize him this is very interesting mary magdalene in john 20 the disciples on the Emmaus road in luke 24 the disciples on resurrection day in john 20 None of them recognized him until he chose to reveal himself. This is really important. Because what we'll see when we get to the outline in these verses is that he chose carefully whom to reveal himself to, and even in his presence, they did not know him until he made himself known. It's interesting to know also that within that context, we have no record of Jesus revealing himself post-resurrection to any unbelievers. He revealed himself to his family, to those who would be witnesses and testifying of his resurrection, his lordship, and establishing the church. Clearly, there was a purpose in whom he revealed himself to. And with that as our backdrop, let's begin looking at the four phases of Christ's post-resurrection appearances. The first phase was to the foundational twelve. The foundational twelve, verse five says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, we understand that Cephas was part of the twelve. And so these are the disciples. First among those, he appeared to Peter individually Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name, same person, the same Peter you're familiar with. And this is who Jesus appeared to first in Paul's timeline. If you are familiar with the Gospels, you know that Paul's timeline here is missing someone very important. Mary Magdalene. In all four Gospels, we read that some women, including Mary Magdalene, come to the grave only to find that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb is empty. Then an angel, not Christ yet, an angel speaks to them, says, I know what you're looking for, but Christ is risen. He is not here. We assume, based on the narrative, that at some point Mary Magdalene separates from the other women and, according to John chapter 20, is the first to witness the resurrected Lord, and to interact with him. Why does Paul leave her out? To understand why Paul leaves out this account, you need to understand what he is doing here, what he is establishing here, and what he is doing is laying out evidence of Christ's resurrection through the testimony of eyewitnesses. He's almost doing exactly what you would do in front of a council, or what we would call uh, a judge or a jury, lawyers at that time, laying out facts and evidence as eyewitnesses. And in his culture, women were not allowed to be witnesses in any official capacity. So, borrowing the methods and laws of the day, he only mentions men. And so for his purposes, the first person that can officially, on record, legally testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is Peter. And this is recorded for us in Luke 24, verse 34, which places this event after Mary Magdalene's meeting and before the two on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that scene? They're talking to Jesus and Jesus saying, what are you talking about? He's like, Are you the only person here who hasn't heard what's been going on? And they have no idea that they're talking about the central figure of what's been going on. The then, back in 1 Corinthians, speaks of sequence in time. So after Cephas, that is Peter, Jesus appears to the twelve. The twelve, as you know, is the title for the twelve disciples. It's a title, even if not all 12 were present. We know at this particular appearance, there's only 11 for sure, because Judas is dead. Matthias had yet to replace him. And according to John 20, 24, Thomas wasn't there either, but did see him later. Regardless, Paul is using an accepted term for the disciples, even though there weren't 12 there at that particular time. It was their title at this point. It's kind of like saying, the board of my company met on Monday morning, even though not all the board members were present. You could still say the board was there. We met as a church on Sunday morning, March 6, 2022, even though not all members of our church were here. The 12 had become a technical term at this point. So the appearing to the Twelve is recorded for us throughout the Gospels, John 20, Luke 24, Mark 16. You're familiar with this sighting. That meeting was on the very evening of Resurrection Day, Easter, if you will, right after the two who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus came back. They told the, told the other disciples, or they told the disciples what had happened, and then Jesus appears to the twelve. It makes sense that this was the first major group of people that Christ appeared to. They were the ones commissioned to lay the foundation of the church, which is what they did. And so you have the foundational twelve. Peter first alone, and then the rest of the twelve. Twelve. As a side note, there is a very Powerful lesson about spirituality, family, and leadership here. You focus on those whom you are closest to first. This is found throughout the New Testament. Your spouse your family are a priority, not to the detriment of others. They are to be a priority as well. But we see this here. We are quick to accuse people of being clickish, of uh, being uh, neglecting other people, not being self-sacrificial. But even Jesus Christ first went to the twelve before the rest. So after the foundational twelve, Jesus appeared to a group of five hundred which serve as a greater testimony outside of the twelve to his resurrection. So our second phase of Christ's post-resurrection appearances is the fuller testimony. Verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. One could argue that if Christ had only appeared to the twelve, then there could be some skepticism about their claim. Well, of course you would say that. You don't want to look dumb. You followed this guy for three and a half years. You claimed that he was the king of kings. You claimed that he was God. Of course, you 12 are going to say that. That's not the case because Christ appeared to many more. It wasn't 500 total. Oh, you saw him? Okay, there are 10 of you he appeared to. Okay, okay, okay. That Oh, that makes 500. No, it was 500 individuals all at the same time, a group of 500 people, so that they were there to affirm, like, am I, are you, pinch me, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Is he really there? Do I just wish he was here? Or is that really him? No, that's him. And so they could all affirm together, yes, this was real. And again, if it was just one guy, he's got sleep in his eyes, be like, I think you're dreaming, buddy. He's crucified. The 12 are in the room right now figuring out what we're supposed to do. We're all freaking out. We're terrified because he's dead. Two, three, maybe. 500, no doubts right there. Impossible to doubt. You don't believe me? Well, uh, ask this guy I have in my back pocket. No, ask these 500 people. Some of them who, who don't even like me. They like to disagree with me they will all tell you the same thing. We all saw him at the same time. There's no way this was a dream. There's no way this was just a vision. There's no way I was hallucinating because there's no way there were 500 of us hallucinating at the same time. We were all there. So when did this take place? In Mark 14, before the crucifixion, Jesus tells Peter that he will go to Galilee after he has been raised. You're familiar with this. Galilee, Galilee. Matthew 28, the angel at the tomb tells the women that Jesus is risen, risen and he is headed where? To Galilee and that they will see him there. Then in verse 10 of Matthew 28, on their way to tell the disciples what had happened at the tomb, Jesus himself meets them. He himself tells the women, tell the brethren to go to Galilee and they will see him. And later in Matthew 28, we are given the Great Commission. The disciples did go to Galilee, and we are told it is there on the mountaintop in Galilee that the Great Commission was given to his followers. And it is most likely that it is there that the 500 were gathered, which would also tell us that there were many who were given the Great Commission and not just the twelve. Of these 500 individuals, back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, most of whom remain until now, most are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Naturally, there's 500 people. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15 between 20 and 25 years after the resurrection, close enough that many of those 500 are still alive, Others have fallen asleep, which as you know is a Christian euphemism for they have died. Saying they have fallen asleep just emphasizes again the topic at hand that they will one day be resurrected or they will one day wake up. Why is this important? Just as with the 12, people would know who these 500 were. Five hundred people were. They were just 500 visitors that disappeared. We can't find them. Where did they come from? They were in the church. They were hanging out. We'd see them. And they could talk to them. What was it like? Did, did you feel something? What did he say? How come he chose you? Be a little kid, be like, was he still bleeding? You know, asking some silly question like that. And then all the adults are glad he asked because they were too afraid to ask but they were interacting. They were part of the church. They were around. They could interact with them, as with the 12, but there were 500 more. It's like, oh, that's great to be here at the church. Hey, we have three of the people who were there in Galilee who saw Jesus after He rose and before He ascended into heaven. Oh man, I want to talk to them. In fact, I'll be honest with you, that's why I came all this way to visit your church, because I wanted to talk to them. I have questions just want to see what it was like. And undoubtedly, as believers, they were more than happy to talk about it, to share the good news, to rejoice with the brethren. And as for Paul, what these 500 do is not only further testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it bridges that gap between the 12 and himself. And so far, we've seen various people that were part of each successive group. And what I mean was this. First was Peter, who was part of the next group, the 12. And we also know that the 12 were among the 500. You don't have that in the next two phases. The third of which is the fundamental team. The fundamental team. Verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James, in this case, is the Lord's brother, half-brother to be exact. James is a very interesting and powerful story. Before Jesus was crucified, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, none of his siblings did. We can understand this from a family point of view, Would you believe it if your brother said he was the king of kings? I think not, but you would be right in that case, but you see what I'm saying. In fact, according to John 7, as I said earlier, none of his brothers believed him. But later, James, this same one who denied the facts, who said, this guy is not the Lord. I grew up with him. Oh, was he really bad? No, he was perfect and it was annoying. <laughs> Could you imagine, right? Being the brother of Jesus as a kid. Never got in trouble or when he did, you knew that your parents were wrong. Perfect baby. Perfect child. And so he said, this guy's, no. I don't." And, and we even have record of Jesus saying, doesn't matter if they're here. You're my family. You're my brother. You're my sister. And then you go after the early church is established or being established. In Galatians 1.19, this same James is mentioned right there along with the apostles. He's referred to in Galatians 2.9 as a pillar of not just any local church, but the Jerusalem church. He plays a significant role at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. This is huge for all of us, unless any of you are Jewish remember the Jerusalem council? There are Gentiles coming to faith, mainly because of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. And they're saying, well, these Gentiles are not circumcised. They want to join the way. What do we do? We better go to Jerusalem and talk to all the leaders of the new way, the church, and figure out what to do. What do we do? Do we circumcise them? Do we allow them to to accept this gospel? And there's different things that are said. Paul affirms and says, remember that Christ sent me out to the Gentiles, that he, there must be a reason for that. People are pushing back on Paul and Barnabas because they just assumed that this ministry, this, this new religion was only for the Jews. And then in this narrative in Acts 15, James is the last one to speak. He says a few things from his own wisdom, and he also quotes Amos. And it is after he speaks that the council ends and not only agrees that it is right to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they choose some men to accompany Paul and Barnabas. And this is a guy who just a few short months earlier was saying, don't believe it. So how did James, who doubted Jesus, come to believe, not to mention rising up to become one of the founding leaders of the early church, or the church as we know it? Probably because he saw the resurrected Jesus. And now we know in part why Jesus appeared to his brother after his resurrection. Again, this is not random, This is not willy-nilly. This was a strategic method to the Lord's post-resurrection appearances in terms of testimony and church growth. And in that plan after James, we are told he appeared to the apostles, specifically all the apostles. In other words, the apostolic body as a whole. So this would include the 12 plus others who were considered apostles at that time. We know that there were certain companions of the apostles, co laborers of the apostles that were themselves eventually referred to as apostles. Barnabas, Timothy, Sylvanus, for example. Suffice it to say that the key leaders of the church at that time, as chosen and gifted by God, were there to see Jesus in his resurrected state. Again, not a passing vision, but a real visit, real interactions with Jesus Christ. This was his core team. This was important. But there was one more person that was a huge part of the team that was not in this picture. And Paul tells us that this individual came into play last. And that leads us to our final phase of Christ's post-resurrection appearances We've seen the foundational 12, the fuller testimony of the 500, the fundamental team of James and the greater apostolic body, and finally, number four, the final triumph. Verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Last of all, Jesus appeared to Paul. The appearance to Paul was the Damascus Road experience that he alludes to in chapter 9 and verse 1. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. This was different than the previous appearances that we've seen thus far this morning because this one was not only post-resurrection, it was post-ascension. And he uses this interesting phrase to describe himself. He says, I was one untimely born. The NIV says abnormally born. Literally in the Greek, this speaks to an abortion or a miscarriage or a stillborn baby. What in the world does he mean by this? Why does he use this to describe himself in this context? Although he doesn't, I should actually, I should clarify When I say stillborn, I mean miscarriage, not a baby that comes full term and is stillborn, but a baby that is stillborn because it is born too early. This is important when we look at the context of why he uses this. He doesn't specify exactly what he's talking about here, but there are a few nuances to this. First, there is the issue of timing. Everyone else on this list And everyone else that is called an apostle saw Jesus shortly after his resurrection, before his ascension. He revealed himself to specific people who were related to him as followers or family. And then he ascended to heaven. None of this involved Paul. And as we've seen before, one of the requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. So how could it be possible for him to become an apostle when it was required to see the risen Lord and the Lord had already ascended into heaven? And so he said, I missed the boat. He says this with an understanding that he is an apostle and that he did see the resurrected Lord. We know that God could do this. He did do this. He called him, assigned him to be an apostle. And in that Paul understood, as we see from this phrase, that his seeing Jesus Christ was not just miraculous because Jesus was risen from the dead. He revealed himself after he ascended. It was a miracle above another miracle. Speaking of which, that brings us to our second nuance of what it means that Paul was untimely born. And this second nuance can be summed up in one word, our favorite word, grace. Because of the grace of Christ, not the name of our church. What do I mean by this? A miscarriage, an abortion is dead. It cannot live. It has no ability to sustain its own life. That's what it is. Perhaps for a time... The mother's body sustained its life, but out of the womb it cannot sustain its own life. And without divine intervention, Paul was spiritually dead. Despite his religious upbringing, despite his standing among the Jews, only by God's grace was he not only saved, but called to such incredible service. And the illustration he gives comparing to physical life is speaking of his spiritual life without divine intervention. Because at the moment that he was called to service was also when he was saved. He said, I would have been like a miscarried baby. Not physically, but spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. Thinking he had the right way thinking he was going to heaven, thinking he was leading others to heaven, but truly dead, which he didn't realize until that Damascus Road experience. I want to give you a third nuance to the meaning of what Paul declares himself to be. It comes from a cultural and political setting of his day, historical setting. As you know, Rome was powerful back then, and we're familiar with the Roman Senate. There is nothing new under the sun. And what I mean is this. Back then, there were Roman senators who came into power and became senators not because of their ability, not because of their political prowess, but because they had bribed someone or because their family was wealthy or because someone owed them a favor and they decided to cash it in. And so there they sat helping to decide the present and future of the Roman Empire, being totally unqualified for the job. They were in no way worthy of being called a Roman senator. And a common term in that day for these senators was abortives. Which leads me to believe that in the same vein, due to his personal view that he is not qualified because of his previous hostility toward Christ and the people of God, that he was not worthy of salvation and he definitely was not worthy of Christian service and apostleship, which next week he talks about in great detail. He was a persecutor of the ones he now serves once wishing them dead, now giving them the hope of eternal life. And again, he will elaborate more on this in the next passage. So to summarize, historically, he missed the boat in terms of the time when Christ could be seen in his resurrected state. Jesus took care of that for him. Spiritually, he was a sinner destined for the wrath of God. And personally, he was in no way worthy of the status of apostle due to his former not just practice, but zeal in persecuting the new way. What's interesting about all three of these is that they also pertain to you. They also pertain to me. We are reminded, not just in the life of the Apostle Paul, but also in the lives of the 12, all the apostles, James, the 500, Peter, that it was, and it is, all grace. Grace seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as you know, and as we will see in this chapter, without the resurrection, none of it matters. None of it is effective. None of us are saved. Nobody can be saved. In other words... Without divine intervention, we are all doomed. We have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, not with our eyes, not with our ears, but in our hearts. We have the resurrected Jesus Christ in our hearts. Apostleship is gone dead, we have no desire to be apostles, but it is these very truths affirmed and testified to by these several hundred individuals that we are who we are, that we can be here and say amen, that we can sing these songs and know what they mean, that we can, unlike many of the Corinthians, know that we will be resurrected in bodily form as Jesus Christ was the forerunner and be with him. And live in eternity on the new earth in our human form, though glorified with Jesus Christ for eternity. Because of the resurrection, perhaps you find yourself like a James who was so close to the Lord. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you went to church. Maybe your best friend in high school or college was a Christian. You experienced the grace of being, even as an unbeliever, of being an attender at a church. Enjoying the morality of those around you. Enjoying the fruits of the blessing on the church as a whole. But you said, nah. This is good, but I don't think so. And now here you are. In the Lord, with the Lord's people, serving the Lord, and serving the Lord's people. And you look back at your life and you say, it was all grace. Maybe that wasn't you. Maybe you were like the Apostle Paul, not holding people's outer garments while they stoned someone to death, but maybe you claimed that you were an atheist. Maybe you were a Muslim or Catholic or some other religion criticizing the evangelical church. Maybe you were just an average Californian who mocks and laughs at the silliness according to them of what we are doing this morning. Maybe you judged the church in your heart knowing that they were doing the right thing morally, but thinking, man, what a, what a bunch of killjoys. What a bunch of losers. We would be better if they weren't around. You think, hey, if the Christians weren't around, there would be no vaccine mass debate. If the Christians weren't around, there would be no Donald Trump, some of them think. Get rid of them. At least get out of our state. They laugh. They mock. Maybe they're neutral. Maybe you were pleasant. But when it came to discussing your living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, you know what? Just be quiet, Christian. I don't want to hear that. I don't want this baby and I don't want your opinion about it. And you look back and still, even as a believer, maybe you think back at those experiences and you weep yourself to sleep. But now you look at who you are and what you have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His appearance to you in your life heart and through the gospel message and you realize it's all grace but can I challenge you with something as well maybe none of this resonates with you He said I was, just, I was just a good kid and went to church and I didn't really rebel and I was fine I just didn't really accept Christ till later in life because I didn't get it so I didn't wasn't mad at Christians, I didn't want them gone, I didn't persecute them, I didn't laugh at them, I didn't really do anything against what my parents believed as Christians. And then you look at that guy and say, (laughs) I can't share the gospel with him. He hates, from what I can tell, he hates the church. He's pleasant with me, but man, he gets so mad. And I, I can almost, I, I know, I know that there would be some sort of violence against Christians if it weren't for the fact that his brother, his sister, his daughter were a Christian. Say, that guy, he's too far gone for the resurrection. He's too deep in his sin, too anti-God, there's no hope. And to that, I humbly and respectfully ask you, how dare you? How dare you speak of God that way? Your God who saved you your God who saved James, your God who saved Peter, who saved Saul, the great persecutor of the church, He can do it because of the resurrection. It is so important in our faith. It is key to the gospel. It is important in our lives, in our evangelism. It should motivate everything we do Because there is hope. There is hope that you will see Him one day. There is hope that others, if they repent, can see Him one day. So all that we are saying, all that I'm saying, is not be a radical Christian, just be a Christian. Evangelism is not radical Christianity. With all respect, great respect and prayers... The people holding church, not right now, I don't know what time zone there are, with rubble falling from the ceiling of the subway in Ukraine as missiles and bombs are shattering their homes and they are worshiping in a subway that is not radical Christianity, that is Christianity. Jim Elliot being speared by natives and then his wife going back and sharing the gospel with the very people who killed their husbands and letting their children be raised by the very man who speared his dad to death so that that man to this day as an adult calls him the equivalent of granddaddy in our language. That is not radical Christianity. That is Christianity. We just do whatever we're called to do. You just be faithful to our spouses, to our families, to our unbelievers, to our church. Wherever God puts you, you just be faithful to those around you, and that's just Christianity. Nobody says, I'm going to go out and die because I want to be a radical Christian. No Ukrainian hopes for war and death so they can say, I want to prove that our church is radical Christian so we can still have church in a subway that may cave in on us. It's just Christianity. It's just being faithful. And what I am saying is if the resurrection is true, it is powerful. And it is empowering. I don't mean that in a psychological way. I mean literally. He is empowering you to do what we're talking about this morning. Because of the resurrection, how can you fear? How can you say, no, I don't want to take the high road. It's too hard. It's embarrassing. I've got to humble myself when Christ rose from the dead. How can you say, nah, he's going to make fun of me. He's not going to become a Christian when Christ rose from the dead. How can you say, I know I'm supposed to swallow my pride, but I am not going to give in. I'm just going to keep arguing with my spouse and give them the silent treatment when Christ has risen from the dead. We get so used to this that we forget how significant and life changing, yes, but frankly, in comparison, how petty our little sins and our, our grudges and our, the things we hold on to are. It's silly. Christ is risen from the dead. Let's live in that. Let's rejoice in that. Let's preach that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have testimony of those who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for all that you are doing in our lives, and I pray that you would help us to do all that much more with the hope and the powering of your Holy Spirit, because all of this is real and you are alive. Use us as a church who understand and appreciate and live our lives according to the gospel with an understanding of the significance and power of the resurrection. Lord, so many of us have become used to this truth that we have lost the significance in our minds of, of what an amazing reality this is. Not just someone being raised from the dead, but why and how and what that means. May you quicken our minds and our hearts. May you soften our hearts to this reality once again that we might honor you fully because of the truth that is contained in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.